Great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 24, uh, verse 1, as we continue in our series exploring historical evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, we started the series by looking at medical and historical evidence for the death of Jesus. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we looked at evidence establishing that Jesus, uh, after he died, was placed in a well-secured tomb that was public knowledge, and that that same well-secured tomb was later found empty under very unusual circumstances. So that's what we've sort of established so far through the series, but notice that a real death uh, plus a real uh, burial and even a real empty tomb doesn't necessarily get you a resurrection, uh, which is what we'll be turning our attention to this morning. Uh, We pick up in Luke 24, verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb where Jesus was buried. Uh, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray. Jesus, as we uh, contemplate uh, the events that took place around the empty tomb and uh, the first sightings, and uh, this, this message, this proclamation of resurrection. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would uh, open our eyes uh, to who you truly are, to what you're up to in the world, uh, to how we might live in light of the reality of these historical events. Lord, don't let them be just knowledge in our heads or interesting facts that we carry Uh, but would they truly transform uh, the way that we view uh, life and death and and purpose and the the world that we live in. Uh, Come and do this work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The evidence is clear that Jesus died on the cross. It is also clear from history that Jesus was buried in this specific tomb and that this specific tomb is found empty on the third day. But the driving question is, what happened to Jesus and how do we know from history uh, that he was resurrected? 
Uh, skeptics will often accept the evidence proving Jesus died. I think the evidence is that good. Uh, and many of them eventually accept that he was buried in this tomb. But the real debate lies in what happens next. Uh, the tomb was found empty. We know that from history. The religious elite, ironically, actually confirm it. Uh, but what about these circumstances uh, surrounding the discovery of the empty tomb? When we start talking about the resurrection, uh, skeptics are quick to point out that while the four gospel accounts are consistent in many ways, uh, all four of them actually contain different accounts of what happened that first Easter morning. Uh, Michael Martin, kind of a, a skeptical philosopher, explains it this way. He says, In Matthew, when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrive toward dawn at the tomb, there is a rock in front of it. There's a violent earthquake and an angel descends and rolls back the stone. In Mark, the women arrive at the tomb at sunrise and the stone has been rolled back. In Luke, when the women arrive at early dawn, they find the stone had already been rolled back. Next slide. In Matthew, an angel is sitting on the rock outside the tomb. And in Mark, a youth is inside the tomb. In Luke, two men are inside. In Matthew... The women present at the tomb are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In Mark, the women present at the tomb are the two Marys and Salome. In Luke, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women are present at the tomb. Next slide. In Matthew, the two Marys rush away from the tomb in great, in great fear and joy, run to tell the disciples and meet Jesus on the way. In Mark, they run out of the tomb in fear and say nothing to anyone. In Luke, the women report the story to the disciples who did not believe them, and there is no suggestion that they met Jesus. So one of the first things we have to wrestle with from a, a skeptical historical perspective is what appears to be differing accounts that are given. Uh, how can they possibly be reconciled? Uh, don't the differences between these accounts disqualify their testimony? Uh, what do you do with four differing accounts? And the good news is uh, that while this seems to pose a problem from a, a scientific forensic perspective, it poses no problem at all uh, from the perspective of historical evidence. In fact, uh, if I think back to my law school days and lawyer days uh, and remember what it was like to, to be in court and to have witnesses called, then you, uh, if I were to call uh, four separate witnesses and they all were to come in separately without knowledge of the other and give the exact same testimony, uh, it would actually serve to discredit their testimony. It would actually be a sign in most courtrooms uh, that that testimony had been faked. So let's say we, there was a case surrounding a bar fight, and they were all witnesses to the same bar fight. I could call each one in and say, hey, who started the fight? Uh, how did it start? What's the first thing you remember? What did you see? Uh, what happened next? Uh, how did it escalate? Uh, who was at fault? Were any innocent bystanders uh, hurt along the way? Uh, well, all four witnesses that I called would have a different perspective 
but all four would be testifying to the exact same event that occurred. In fact, if you called in four witnesses and they have the same testimony, that's usually a sign that the testimony is false, uh, that they've been coached in their testimony. It comes across as fake. So if all four witnesses come in separately and, and say, I saw the defendant, he was wearing a blue shirt, he marched over, he, he pushed this guy down and said, Bob, do you want to fight me? You know, and then they leave and the next one comes in. Exact same thing, word for word. The next one comes in. Well, that would actually be a sign. Everyone in the courtroom would assume that they had been coached into identical matching testimonies and therefore none of the four could truly be trusted. Instead, what we have are four different testimonies establishing that something remarkable happened at the tomb that the stone was rolled away, that the body of Jesus was gone, that angelic beings were present in different manifestations. And eventually, Jesus himself is seen by Mary Magdalene and some of the other women. This historical core, in my opinion, is actually made more reliable by the differing secondary details. Because if the account was faked, uh, then the witnesses would have been coached. There would have been one clear, identical story, but that's not what we have. Instead, the women go running from this event to tell the disciples and others, and by the time they arrive, Luke says the disciples don't even believe them because, quote, their words seem to them like nonsense. They were excited witnesses, witnessing to different secondary details, differing in their emphasis. But it's clear that something happened that morning. And uh, what we have reads more like history or a courtroom testimony than it does a falsified event. And speaking of courtroom testimony, it is uh, a significant historical detail that all four Gospels affirm that women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and this is a bit lost on us, but in the first century, women were looked down on as inferior to men. And in many of those cultures, uh, female testimony was not even admissible in court. Uh, they, they were not to be uh, seen as reliable witnesses. So if you are the first disciples and you want to invent a, a rumor, a legend, a falsified event involving a resurrection, then the very last thing that you want to do is place women there as the first and primary witnesses. It's a bit lost on us, but in the first century, sadly, you were literally shooting yourself in the foot if you did that. You would never falsify an account in which women were the first and primary witnesses. Uh, in fact, in Mark's account, we're told, uh, quote, that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And this number seven is significant in, in the Hebrew culture. It was like a, like a superlative or an exclamation mark. It essentially meant that she was completely full of demons, uh, that she was super demonized, that she was mega demonized. 
which in our cultural lens, I think the, the title we would probably apply to someone like that would be mentally insane. That's what we would assume was happening to that person. So you can uh, imagine a homeless person, sort of disheveled, uh, maybe drug addicted, wandering in the streets aimlessly, talking to herself. Uh, that was Mary Magdalene. And, and now the disciples come out of hiding and they say, Jesus is back from the dead. And our first and primary witness is, drum roll please, Mary Magdalene. And, and the rest of the culture is saying, no, 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 no. Like we would hardly believe you if, if it was a sane woman. And your first and primary witness is is one that was insane. I mean, that is, that is a, a terrible first witness for a falsified account. But the disciples didn't have a choice, did they? Embarrassed or not, they had to write down what happened. And Mary Magdalene was the first human witness to the most important event in all of human history. Thankfully, she wasn't the last. Eventually, Jesus appears to some of the other women, then to two male disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to the eleven as they ate in a home. Uh, in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a list of some of the people that Jesus appeared to. Uh, it says, he appeared uh, to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, that's Paul writing, as to one abnormally born. Now, as a uh, side note, 1 Corinthians is believed to be one of the earliest manuscripts in the New Testament. It predates the Gospels themselves, and it was written just a few years after the events in Jerusalem. And uh, what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually quoting an earlier source. So imagine this is put in writing just a few years after the resurrection, but he's citing something earlier than his writing. This is a, a, a copying a creed, essentially, from the very early church just as it's born in Jerusalem. Uh, he likely got this creed and this list of witnesses that we just read directly from Peter and James, who were themselves eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So uh, immediately after the tomb is found empty... The church is born, people start claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, and Paul is essentially inviting people uh, to go and interview these witnesses. He says, hey, you can go talk to Peter, you can go talk to James, you can talk to 500 of the brothers and, the, and sisters who saw him at the same time. I mean, it's been a few years now, I'm sure a few of them have died, but most of them are still there right here, right now, today with us in Jerusalem, go and interview them while you still have a chance. Go right now. Like You can go and check out this list that was widely available in the early church. Uh, and notice 
that this is not how legends are born. Uh, if you look at legends throughout history, it, they usually develop uh, a generation or sometimes many generations after the actual events and often in a time and place uh, that is divorced from the original events. Uh, it, legends need uh, time and space and generations and geographic distance uh, to, to grow. And you don't have that here. What we have in this case is that the first witnesses preach clearly, they preach consistently, they preach in an unbroken line from the heel of the very events themselves, and they preach in the very city where these events happened, referencing people and witnesses and locations that could easily be visited and verified by the people that they're, that they're speaking to. In fact, in the account of Peter preaching uh, in, at Pentecost, this is weeks after the resurrection, he's preaching to a crowd in Jerusalem, and he essentially says, you did this. Like, this isn't some far-off divorce thing that happened a thousand years ago. You did it. You murdered Jesus a few weeks ago, and God rose him from the dead. Had the claims of resurrection arisen three generations later, among a Jesus fanatics in Rome, 2,000 miles away, then the claims would be much more suspect. Uh, but these people claim that Jesus rose from the dead right there and right then, in the very place that they were preaching. So it starts with uh, Mary and some of the women, and then it begins to spiral outward with an increasing number of people, but critics of the resurrection will say, uh, sure, Jesus died on a cross. Like, we see the evidence for that. We get that. Yes, he was buried. Yes, the tomb was later found empty. And yes, these people believed that they saw him. But, the critics will say, these appearances were not bodily appearances. Uh, they, they must have been grief-related appearances. Uh, they must have been visions, or more precisely, in scientific language, we would say they were hallucinations. Uh, the disciples were so wrought with grief, they were so beside themselves, that they thought they were seeing Jesus in their upset state, uh, but they were really just seeing hallucinations. And this is usually where skeptics will dig in their feet they, and, and say, this is it. This is the explanation. The body was stolen, uh, hallucinations follow, and then the legend is born. But uh, there are layers of issues with that theory. First off, uh, hallucinations are rare occurrences, and they occur in circumstances of extreme deprivation. So you can imagine uh, Navy SEALs deep in their training, uh, there's a lack of food, there's a lack of water, there's extreme uh, sleep deprivation, they're being pushed physically beyond what their bodies can handle, and then hallucinations occur. Uh, one of them thinks they see a steam train charging down the beach, and, and they dive out of the way. Uh, one of them thinks that a, a dolphin was talking to them, and they kind of turn to their buddies, and like, oh, did you, did you hear that? Did you hear what that dolphin just said? It's those sorts of things are uh, documented hallucinations. 
Uh, hallucinations are fairly well understood, and they happen under specific conditions. It involves deprivation or drug use uh, combined with an excited mind, one full of anticipation or expectancy. The problem is those conditions aren't present here. Uh, the disciples are grieving. They're not excited. Uh, they're not under extreme deprivation. They have sleep and food and water. Uh, they aren't in a place of expectancy or anticipation. In fact, they're actually in a place of doubt and skepticism, uh, of mourning and unbelief. Uh, but then they see him, and they see him in all sorts of situations, uh, indoors, outdoors, alone, in groups, men and women of all different backgrounds and temperaments, and many of them see him at the same time. And this actually becomes significant because while hallucinations have been well documented throughout history, there has never once in any context been a group hallucination. Never. In other words, hallucinations can happen under just the right combination of deprivation and excitement, but they're very rare they occur in your own head and only in your head. There is no corresponding reality. Your Navy SEAL buddies sitting on the beach do not see a steam train coming down the beach. Like there's literally nothing there to correspond. Only you see it. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, appears to individuals, but he also appears to groups. In fact, 1 Corinthians says that he appears to 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And you cannot experience a hallucination with someone else. There is no such thing as a group hallucination. Uh, and even when uh, one of the Navy SEALs hallucinates, uh, he can usually be talked out of it or brought back to reality by his friends. Hallucinations don't change lives. They are rare, they're fleeting in general, and they're impossible under the circumstances being described here. What the disciples encountered was something different. Not only was the tomb empty, but, but Jesus was alive. His body was restored. In fact, he had a new type of body, a, a resurrection body. It was different than the one he had before. If you still have your Bibles open to Luke 24, you can look down to verse 36. It might be on the next page. We'll end with this. Uh, Jesus shows himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's the middle of Luke 24. They run and tell the other disciples, and then we read this in verse 36. It says, while they were all still talking about this, Jesus them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. So they think initially, hey, he must be a spirit or, or we're seeing things. But he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
And while they still did not believe him because of joy and amazement, okay, they're in shock. It is so far outside their paradigm of reality. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Can you touch a hallucination or a spirit? Can a ghost eat your lunch? I don't think so. Come see, Jesus says, and touch. I I am real. I am here. I am back from the dead. And this is the moment when their world gets turned upside down and they become eyewitnesses to the most important event in human history. In fact, years later, when John is reflecting back and writing a letter to the early church, he begins with these words. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The despairing disciples encountered the risen Jesus and their lives would never be the same again. Michael Green says it this way. We'll end with this. He says, The appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything else in antiquity. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred and that the main reason why Christians became sure of his resurrection in the earliest days was just this. They could say with assurance, we have seen the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, as we uh, approach Easter in a skeptical culture, uh, some of us wrestling with our own doubts, some of us like the original disciples seeing all of the, all of the evidence and just saying, I, I, just, I just am struggling to grasp this. Lord, we come to you just as you are this morning, and we pray that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that you would, um, as Paul says, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Um, We we love the historical evidence that we have. Um, There's actually a way that we can see it and not respond. There's a way that we can we can see it and acknowledge it as fact and, and not be changed at the core of our being. But Jesus, if, if this is false and you didn't rise from the dead, the scripture says we have nothing at all. Our faith is worth nothing. The gospel's worth nothing. Our preaching is worth nothing. We're still in our sin. We have no hope of eternal life. But if this is true, 
then, then we have everything. If, if this is true, Jesus, it, it changes everything that we believe about your power, about your presence, about eternal life, uh, about what's possible right here and right now. So Jesus, we uh, join with the cry uh, uh, of the man who said, Jesus, I, I believe, would, would you help me overcome my unbelief? Like, like, I'm in, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that you rose from the dead. Now, now would you permeate the rest of me? Would, would the reality of the resurrection uh, sink into the very core of our being? Jesus, if this is true, if you're back from the dead, it challenges everything that we think about ourselves, about our world, about what's possible, about the world that is yet to come. So we invite you here, Holy Spirit. We see that one of the purposes, one of your jobs is, is to put Jesus on display, to make him real to us, to guide us into your, your truth, your presence, your power. And so we come to you this morning, Jesus, in our frailty, in our weakness, just as we are. We say, would you come, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes. Sometimes we're like those disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. We think great and incredible things about you, but, but we, we, we don't see you for the fullness of who you are. You're right here. Would you come, Lord? Would you set a table for us? Would you, would you break bread with us? Would you open our eyes to who you are? We wait on you now. We worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen.